Welcome to the greatest discovery. It's a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of the greatest generation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm a little winded, Ben, because I've been <laughs> I've been out on my patio running the puppy. This is yeah. this is a technology to wear her out. <laughs> and what it does, unfortunately, it wears me out too. Yeah. That uh that blade cuts both ways, doesn't it? <laughs> How is it that this thirteen week old puppy has more stamina than a forty <clears throat> old man? Yeah, how? How indeed, Adam. <laughs> yeah. Puppies they really have like a thousand percent on or zero percent on as their two settings also. That has been my experience, and I wish I could transpose when those things happen. Like, I would give anything for Ripley late night to be transposed into the morning. Like, I would yeah. much rather have her aggro energy then than yeah. when we're winding down and trying to go to bed. <laughs> but that's the situation. Like, she's cool as hell first thing in the morning, napping yeah. a bunch, just like a great hang. And then once we get into the evening, it is just a riot. We've had a a few weeks of pretty bad sleep over here at my house that is due to Darwin. Mm. And my wife finally cracked the code of what is going on because so we have these crappy bedside tables uh -huh. on either side of the bed that are made out of folded sheet metal that we bought at IKEA for like, you know, eleven dollars and thirty-eight cents a piece. They're like TV tray style things. If you picture like a rolling filing cabinet it's like a chest of drawers like that except for the drawers are way too small to be useful for any practical purpose oh yeah they are much flimsier material than your average filing cabinet not anything you want to put a leg up on during right <laughs> they are uniquely terrible as bedside tables because if i'm like in the middle of the night like turn over and my hand hits it it goes like boom oh no they're so loud. That's not what you want. And Darwin figured this out where he's like, oh, if I go over to Ben's side of the bed and just push my paw against the bedside table a little bit, it makes a lot of noise and yeah. I will definitely wake him up. Ah, uh, there it is. So here's what we figured out is he's getting up in the middle of the night and waking us up. He's been doing it for weeks. He's been doing it reliably. And we couldn't figure out what was causing him to be so agitated in the middle of the night. And then my wife happened to be up and I farted in my sleep. And Darwin came over to wake me up. And uh, what we figured out is that what he is doing is taking great umbrage when I break wind in the middle of the night in a room that he is locked in with us. That is not <laughs> how I expected this story to end. I thought I thought it was asked and answered as far as the question goes. It's those <laughs> rickety side tables. No, it's your flatulence. It's my flatulence. He does, he does not care for it. No, I mean, who would? See, this is why we don't share a hotel room when we go out on tour. I didn't know yeah. that was the reason, but it's the reason. It's the reason. It's one of the many reasons. Uh, <laughs> yeah. One of the many reasons he regrets being adopted into a family with a fart joke thought leader in it, such as myself. Any dog owner will tell you that the dog fart is a specific and strong uh, yeah, like nuclear deterrent. <laughs> He is such a fucking hypocrite. Yeah. You know? He is a fart hypocrite, Ben. It's madness. Yes. I mean, the, the beauty of having Darwin is that uh, I can occasionally diffuse blame and defer it onto him. And, uh, and that's nice, you know? Nice to have a scapegoat around. I mean, that's one of the reasons to have a dog. I try to take responsibility for my, uh, my trespasses <laughs> whenever possible, but sometimes you just can't. Yeah. I mean... Now your dark secret's exposed to not only yeah. your wife, but everyone else in our- <laughs> yeah, The friends of DeSoto. In our vast live audience for the hit Star Trek podcast, Greatest Discovery. The, the friends of DeSoto know not to be a, in a room that I am sleeping in. Yeah. I guess is the- Yeah. 
I mean, that's a good thing. <laughs> Unless we did the Star Trek cruise and you just passed out in, in some corridor. Oh, yeah. Fairly yeah, unlikely. Up on the pool deck with half-drunk blue beverage in my hand. Yeah, the blue is the gassiest beverage, too. <laughs> so that works. Adam, uh, we've got a great big episode of Greatest Discovery to get into, and I'm eager to do it. Are you now? I am. <laughs> Me too. Are you? I am. The premiere is in the rear view. The season is about to unfold in front of us, starting with Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 2, Anomaly. An episode that begins with Book having flashbacks. Yeah. But his flashbacks come with a kind of mental jog shuttle, don't they? And this might, does this have anything to do with the type of alien he is? I wanted to ask you this because it shows a close-up of his hand working controls on his ship like he's rocking the reels on a Steenbeck uh, <laughs> editing some footage for his uh, yeah. sophomore year film school class. We just need that tracking effect cutting across <laughs> the screen. I didn't see like a reverse shot of him looking up at his screen like because it would make sense if his ship had you know, cameras are on the outside. Like he could just be looking back at footage of the thing he experienced, but it, it also sort of seems like it's happening in his head. Yeah. Unclear at this point, the depth of what's happening here. I mean, it, it could be to someone else in the room, like a Michael Burnham, like he's just having a long stare into the middle distance, mm -hmm. but it does look mm -hmm. like something traumatic is visiting book in this scene in a more substantial way than maybe a human could process it. I think the important upshot is that, like Tony Soprano, the birds seem like they're going to be very significant. Dead butterflies in the sky. <laughs> Book can fly twice as high. Take a look. His name is Book. <laughs> He's crashing his ship. Crashing his ship. <laughs> He is that kind of sad where comfort does not feel right to him. Yeah. Like when Michael Burnham is trying to be a shoulder for him to lean on, that doesn't feel right to him. He doesn't feel like he, I think it's that survivor's guilt thing, right? Like he doesn't feel like he deserves it. He's looking for what he could have done to prevent this catastrophe. It definitely looks like this. It also looks like stereotypical masculine stoicism. Yeah. You know, the like he's not saying it, but you could read from this that he's big, strong book and he doesn't need Michael Burnham's soft hands to make him feel any better. He's going to process this all alone like, like a cowboy in the Old West. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Yeah. If you will. So when Burnham approaches and sort of like loves on him, he's really not in a place where he can receive it at all. He can't even look at her. And that's maybe the worst part for her because when Burnham gets called into her ready room to, to see Saru, we get a conversation between them that has a lot to do with just how many people are struggling in the moment. Yeah. Book has been locked away on a ship for a couple of days in this catatonic state that we saw. But Book's not the only one going through some things. Yeah, I mean, Michael Burnham had her own connection to Quajon from her much longer period of being here in the future. An open bird lover uh -huh. of, uh, of the Quajon bird species. <laughs> I mean, she celebrates the whole population. Right. Saru is there in his shiny Starfleet captain's uniform. Mm -hmm. I think he looks fucking great. He might be my favorite example of this uniform of anybody in the show. They really got the red right for this, and especially in contrast with his pigmentation. Yeah. That contrast really pops off of an HD screen. Yeah, and he gets a little decoration. Mm-hmm. A brooch. <laughs> yeah, his, his brooch uh, in acknowledgement of the fact that he is still an acting member of the government of his village on Kaminar. Was that what we saw in the like underwater place that he was hanging out with Sukal and the Ba'ul and everything? Yeah, I think that's what that was. Man. You can't pin a brooch on a ba'ul though, right? How are you going to do that? <laughs> you just pick a tentacle? Yeah, yeah. I guess it's got to be a bracelet for them, right? I keep thinking about those ba'ul in the water and how like cloudy the water was around them. 
Oh, yeah. I bet that's what you thought. They really dirty up the water, those Ba'ul. Yeah. Bunch of pig pens in the water. Yeah. (laughs) They are. (laughs) So Saru's there because Burnham called him there. And he's also there because he turned down the command of his own ship so that he could be Burnham's XO. Yeah. A massive sacrifice, I think. It is. I mean, it seems like Saru like actually being the kind of ride or die friend that he has always advocated for people being, though. Mm-hmm. For the first time, like he is actually rising to a standard that he expects of everyone else is like, I know you really need me right now. And so for that reason, I'm going to be here for you. And uh, to her credit, Michael Burnham accepts this offer of help with a lot of grace. The parts of... Star Trek Discovery that I like the least are the ones where the words given to our actors and characters are so writerly and so (laughs) grandiose, like they're real performance pieces, real things that you read for basically to get a part. Mm -hmm. This is an example of a scene that is among my favorite kind of writing for these characters. They're just sitting having a conversation and it's sincere and it's heartfelt, but it's not slathered with the syrup that you often get in a lot of scenes like this. And I and it frustrates me because I know this show is capable of writing these characters down into this kind of dialogue, which is the kind that I prefer. Yeah. The other thing I really appreciated about this scene was when Michael Burnham reaches out to clasp his hands to say thank you for your kind offer. The camera does a really nice job of kind of obscuring yeah. Saru's dog dick fingers behind Michael Burnham's hands. Yeah. Much nicer hands to look at on Michael Burnham. (laughs) Yeah, you see Sonequa Martin-Green's hands facing the camera. You see Saru's fingers pointing away from the camera. And then you don't get the scene where Michael Burnham furiously washes her hands (laughs) after touching Saru's dog dick fingers. (laughs) Chanting out, out, damn spot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. My people were biologically determined for one purpose alone, to sense the coming of death. What? To sense the coming of death. This doesn't make any sense. I sense it coming now. None of it makes any sense. Sounds like nonsense to me. We get a big, big, high-level McLaughlin group. Issue one. At Starfleet Command, with the president even there. Everybody's Mm -hmm. there. And they're talking about what has been causing all this chaos around the galaxy lately. Our current theory is that it's a roving binary black hole. How did no one see it coming? Yeah. Stamets goes to the visual aids and he's like, look, we got a message from a ship out there that was really close to this anomaly. Yeah. And he cues it up and the guy on screen is like, it's a double black hole. <laughs> oh, oh, the way across the sky. Whoa, that's so intense. <laughs> it's almost a triple black hole. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Woo. And it really, like, it emotionally it kind of counterpoints the dead seriousness that's happening in the room. I also like the, as a person who doesn't understand astrophysics, Uh I was like, so why did it destroy the planet and just make that station go like, whoa, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I like that they like addressed that question as it popped into my head. Yeah, there's a lot of patter that goes like, well, we think it's this, but we also don't think it's this for this reason, which kind of gets dumbs like you and I off the hook for like <laughs> having to understand this stuff because no one understands this thing at this point. We know it's there. You and I got to go to the uh, digital premiere party for for Discovery Season 4, which, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, we did after we'd already recorded our Season 4, Episode 1 episode. Did you enjoy trying out your jokes in the chat room there? Well, I thought of one that I, I wish I could go back and put into, yeah. <laughs> into that episode, which is when all the uh, frozen gas starts hitting the station, I wrote into the chat, I've heard of hailing the starbase, but this is ridiculous. Nice. Good one. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, anybody listening that listened to that last episode, just mentally edit that back in to like that part. And uh, you'll think I'm like really witty and and quick, you know. I know that to be true. I've mentally done that. (laughs) And it's a better episode for it. Thank you. (laughs) 
Do you think we'll have a, a lot of four star reviews on Apple Podcast uh, retroactively upgraded to five stars? Like, yeah, it's actually better than I thought. It's a very meta kind of reference, Ben. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Much in the same way you've made a previous episode better. Our viewers can go back and make a previous review better. <laughs> but your personal feelings complicate your decision. Big moment at the end of this scene where everyone, no matter if you're Federation or not, pledges to work together. This is a threat that's too dangerous to be on the sidelines. Yeah, even Navarre is going to help. <laughs> the president like makes a big... <laughs> A big point of this. Look at this. Even this lady from Navarre <laughs> is stepping up. It's a real coalition of the willing yeah. that they're putting together here at Starfleet HQ. I mean, I guess I understand why Book is at this meeting, but it also seemed weird that he just kind of wandered into the middle of it like, oh, sorry, were you guys meeting in here? Uh, I could come back later. <laughs> At precisely the wrong moment. They're calculating the speed that a bird hits a window when a (laughs) gravitational pulse slams a moon into a planet. Hey, can you play that footage of Quajon blowing up one more time? (laughs) Oh, damn. Oh, right in the planet. Oh, shoot. Hey, book. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the America's Funniest Home Videos style clip show of of planets (laughs) getting destroyed by... Double black holes. Oh my god. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So Saru has kind of uh, politician speechified a little bit. You think they are setting up Saru to eventually run for president of the Federation? God, I mean, as long as he keeps his hands behind the podium, I think he's got a real <laughs> shot. <laughs> you don't want him to do that Bill Clinton style yeah. gesturing of the hands. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you don't want him to do a lot of things Bill Clinton did. After the meeting, uh, Tilly and Saru find themselves in a corridor, and uh, Tilly calls out whether or not Saru is is wearing those dress shoes that make a person seem taller in the workplace. Yeah. Well, maybe you just like have a little more swagger going on or something. I think it's just that his, he's so drippy in this new <laughs> uniform. Yeah. I, th- I think that's all it is, is she's like, damn, Saru, you are looking great. You're like holding your head high. You seem taller. Yeah. You're dressed like a million bucks. Right, thank you. There is a lot of trauma currency exchange happening in this episode. And here's another <laughs> yeah. here's another moment of that where Tilly goes into the trauma bodega, buys a pack of trauma smokes from Saru, and uh, tells him to keep the change. <laughs> yeah, a lot of NFTs getting minted for non-fungible trauma. Yeah. Maybe get me a bacon, egg, and trauma while you're back there. <laughs> this is the first of many scenes that go like this, but this is trauma centering a feeling that goes something like it is a perspective builder and this is the thing that Tilly kind of lands on at the end this was a shitty experience but you know being in Starfleet is basically a career made of shitty experiences really when you stop to think about it yeah and especially in this era of Starfleet that they came from Mm -hmm. like where it's so much final frontier rather than like the TNG era where everything is a lot more figured out I really like Mary Wiseman's simmering under the surface-ness of her feelings here. Like yeah. there are times later on in the episode where she cannot put the lid on that pot, but here she seems like really strong and conversational about it in a way that does not seem like it's about to break her down. And I like how much thought there must have been about like the spectrum yeah. of that scene to scene and the choice she had to make here in which version of that to play. I think it's especially interesting in the context of it being Saru that she's talking about right. it with because he's the person that tapped her for temporary XO duty last season. Yeah. So Saru comes on the bridge, some uh, banter about what to call him. How about Mr. Saru? I like that. Yeah, I think it's good. Look, there was a lot of, I, I'll say this, in the chat for the premiere there was a lot of, I noticed that reference kind of right. finger gunning at the show as it was playing. Yeah. And I don't I don't dig that. I'm not the sort that is into that kind of trivia, but I did like this moment for that. The Mr. appendage to Saru's name, I could be down with. Yeah. You don't deserve to wear that uniform. We got a scene down in Six Bay where 
Dr. Culber and Invisible Gray and Adira are checking out a hologram of the golem that they're making for Gray to inhabit. Yeah, face to face, Gray is with the golem. And much is made out of the uh, kind of mixed experiences people have had with golems. Yeah. We get a Picard name check here, which would suggest not a terrible end to that version of things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I should get a synth body when I die too. Kind of spoiler alert, right? Yeah, we're, we're reading the tea leaves about the next few seasons of Star Trek Colin Picard, aren't we? Right. This is a scene where Adira is made to play telephone between Gray and Culber. Yeah, and Gray is kind of processing the idea of being visible to everybody again. That's a big goal for his character. Can we get rid of the mole? Based on the couple of last time on reels that we've gotten so far this season, I was really hoping for some sort of Catra, like, Navarre storyline arc to do with Gray here. It doesn't seem like that's the direction they're going, but uh, it kind of felt to me like they were head fainting toward the Vulcans having a particular expertise in reuniting a soul with a body or, or finding a body to put a soul into. Right. Yeah, it seems like it's as commonplace as uh, like swapping a big block engine into uh, into a Chevy Nova, you know? <laughs> yeah. A procedure that is not without some risk, as is established in this scene. Yeah. Like, if you don't get the analogy happening here, this is for the people in the back. Yeah. I just thought it was poetic because also, like, right next to where they're all standing, Dr. Pollard is standing with the captain's chair, looking at the captain's chair's uh, potential new golem. And they're like, hey, so are we going to mill the nubbin off of the bottom of the captain's chair? <laughs> Uh, next version of it. And the captain's <laughs> chair is like, yeah, I don't like feeling imperfect. We got pins of the captain's chair. Yeah. You know, as a personal thank you for all the hard work we do on behalf of, of Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> I got some notes about that chair. Why is it so yeah. big and wide? It's very odd. That's not the only thing. Five light years across. Whoa. Five light years? It is a really wide chair. It's almost bragging about there not being ancillary chairs for other people to sit in on the bridge. It's like the way midsize sedans have grown over the years. Like it used to be <laughs> a midsize sedan could fit into a compact space. And yeah. now like everything is the size of a seven series BMW. Like that's right. what the captain's chair on Discovery looks like now. It's too big. Dial it back, Disco. Mm -hmm. Get a smaller chair. We have engaged the Klingons. 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 Those Klingons. What the hell is going on on this ship? Ship. Haven't the slightest idea. So it's time to jump to this anomaly, Ben. And yeah. when they do, it's quiet. Too quiet. They and I expected bangers, right? Like as soon as they yeah. get on scene. This anomaly just blew up a damn planet, and it's yeah. no bangers. The bird body count on this anomaly extremely high. <laughs> Yeah, how many planets worth of birds is it taken out at this point? I like this moment when they put the polarized Oakleys on the view screen and suddenly like, <laughs> you can see exactly what's happening there. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the cool things about the disco where the saucer section spins. Yeah. They spin the saucer section around so the Oakleys that were on the back of the head yeah. are now on the front. Yeah, it's, very, uh, it's a very David Duvall aesthetic choice there. Mm -hmm. It looks a lot like the air at a Pink Floyd laser show once they can see the gas moving around out there. It is not the nebula they thought they'd be scanning. It yeah. doesn't appear to be a binary black hole system. Oh my God. It's not a double black hole. <gasps> it may oh even be no. a single black hole. <laughs> Too much. That's what it means. Nice work, yeah. <laughs> Isn't this... I mean, of all the moments in Star Trek, Ben, this is the moment to shoot a probe or a buoy, right? Warning buoys. An emergency buoy. A warning buoy. It is. And they talk about shooting dots, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You want to shoot all your dots in there. <laughs> Just shoot ropes of dots. Hey, man, those dots are sentient. <laughs> those dots are part sphere data. Leave them alone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this would be the perfect opportunity. Do you think that this nebula could be Nagilum? God, wouldn't that be great? 
this nebula hasn't made a helmsman have a seizure and die in front of everyone. So yeah, but like the way uh, Stamets talks about it when he comes up on the bridge is like so similar to Data going like, I don't know what the fuck this is, you know? Yeah, I like the mystery of it. I like the continued mystery of it. It's a mystery such that the ship's own sensors can't get in there and dig around. They've got to launch a ship in there. And which ship is it going to be? I mean, Book offers up his services here. Yeah. They've got a problem where the disco is too big, the dots are too small, but Book's ship is just right. Yeah. But like the lead character in a detective movie who had a horrible crime visited on his family. <laughs> He's too close to the case. Yeah. <laughs> Captain Burnham doesn't necessarily know if she wants him to be on it. Burnham's like, how do you expect me to believe you're going to fly the ship when all you ever do is sit there unblinking, staring straight ahead? <laughs> you, you've barely said three words in the last few days, and now you're going to like be the point man on a huge mission? Yeah. Uh, she has doubts. You good, Book? Yep. What? What? Sounds like nonsense. What is going on? Run! Why? Go! Why? I'm trying to save you. This ship isn't going anywhere. Run! Why? Go! Why? I'm trying to save all of you. Who are you? It's interesting that inside Michael Burnham's ready room, she can create hollows in there the same way that we got them in Picard, right? Yeah. She takes herself away on a little mini break to Navarre, a place where she felt very safe when she was little. And she asks Zora to end the program, which is an indication to us that the ship's computer has a name and is sentient, and we've all got to just be okay with that. Like, there is no <laughs> interrogation of that moment whatsoever. The amount of writing that they haven't devoted to what's going on with the sphere data over the last yeah. two seasons is really mind-boggling to me. The computer is now Zora. Pick the name herself. Oh. <laughs> Saru would rightly have follow-up questions. Saru was around. He got a lot of like help from the sphere data too. Exactly. Yeah, I would have asked a follow-up question here if I were him. Zora, huh? So is the computer <laughs> a big fan of the Legend of Zelda and specifically the fish people that live in Hyrule? Yeah. Saru is is pretty much, hey, you okay, bro? <laughs> and uh, it is another great scene where these two actors are given standard dialogue that isn't discovery speech standard yeah. to me i really liked the sincerity level of this moment between them burnham is like it does seem like on paper book is a great person to send on this but also <laughs> he is fucking shattered right now and there better not be any goddamn birds in there the birds yeah <laughs> and so saru is like maybe let's send him in but like put a leash on him and Send him in with like a, a hollow Stamets to keep an eye on things. Yes, uh, hollow Stamets is going to be the chaperone that everyone enjoys seeing at a school dance. <laughs> yeah. I'm here for the data. You wouldn't know what to look for. He's going to be uh, shining a flashlight in between Book and the Nebula just to make sure they kind of keep their distance. I really like the backstory asked and answered element to this moment because when it starts, I'm like, well, Stamets and Book don't really have a relationship. And then I remember Book became the spore pilot of the ship last season. Yeah. And so there have got to be feelings about that. And then I remember the circumstances for that being that Stamets took a piece of shrapnel to the body, which is the reason he couldn't fly the ship. And then Book ended up saving the day, the crew, his family, and everyone from certain yeah. deaths. So there are some feelings there that we are reminded of. A very weirdly inflected version of professional jealousy, mm -hmm. I want to say that Stamets is harboring. And I think it's a very interesting scene because Stamets, such a traditionally prickly character, isn't usually stuck in a room with people that he fucking hates. Book, hi. Uh... I prefer prickly Stamets, though, to, to this softer version, you know? Like, I like a more confident Stamets. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious to see if that shift is about him becoming a more likable character or him becoming a better man because mm. i think the two would be kind of distinct yeah. in my head yeah i mean he's like asking culber like you are by far the most beloved person on this crew mm -hmm. <laughs> like everybody thinks you're great what do i do you might as well blow me out an airlock it's one of those scenes that begins with a real sincere interest of 
getting closer and making the best out of the situation and ends in just ashes with a purely professional relationship having been hatched here and nothing more before the mission begins. Yeah. So Stamets is like being like holographically represented in Book's ship, but he's got some kind of pip on his temple that makes him neurologically feel all the feelings of actually being there. And Book is not vulnerable with him in the slightest. (laughs) And we get a couple of sprinklings of dialogue here. The only one who's going to die on this mission is Book if something goes wrong. So it sort of feels insincere for Stamets to project as scared the way he does. And it kind of annoys Book. Yeah. What do you think happened with Grudge when Book took her to the back of the ship? Does, Does Grudge have like a pet carrier back there? I would have been happy if the moth people had actually rescued Grudge and then like made her their queen. Yeah, that would have been cool. I was just thinking maybe leave the cat on the disco if you're flying into a extremely risky scenario. Look, God, this is going to infuriate people when I say this. I don't need any more grudge on this show. I wouldn't do that. Grudge isn't a storyline and isn't an interesting character. Grudge is my favorite character. Fuck you, Adam. Exactly. Yep. Made a big mistake there. The reason I ask is that when Book starts piloting this mission... Some implication is made that there may be a ulterior suicide by anomaly yeah. motive. It's like good that Stamets isn't physically there because Book thinks he can like go fly in and punch his own ticket and they'll still get all the data. Like he can be remembered as a hero who got the data that helped them solve the thing that killed right. Quajon, but also he doesn't have to live with the horrible guilt and everything that he's experiencing. Guilt and grief, uh, I should say. But like, he's taking his cat with him? That's fucked up, Book. Yeah, the cat's innocent. You know what loves killing birds, Book? (laughs) Cats. (laughs) I totally ship a grudge Commander Triple relationship. (laughs) And had Book left grudge on the disco for that to happen... I come back around to the idea of Grudge being on the show long term. As it is- <laughs> There you go. <laughs> see, that's where I'm at with it. Give Grudge something to do besides being pet. Give Grudge a job. <laughs> yeah. Give us a story here. I have some ideas if that would be helpful. So they fly in and they're you know gathering their data. And this is when the first really big banger gets dropped on the Discovery and this is a surprise. They felt like they were at a safe enough distance that they weren't going to get the gravity turned off temporarily so everybody could get dropped on the floor. Zora! Artificial gravity generator. I love this wire work effect. It is really different looking. And we go to the wide shot and we see everyone rise and sort of pause there in kind of a, a nauseating way before getting dropped. <laughs> now. I read that Sonequa Martin-Green had given birth not long before shooting this scene. And when, you, when you're harnessed up for wire work like this, Ben, there's a lot of strength. Yeah. It's not like the wire does the work for you. You need to work on the wire. Yeah. And I just thought that should be uh, recognized as just a great effort by her in this scene especially. Yeah. I went a lot of different directions in this scene. I was wondering if the nebula was fighting back, mm-hmm. like if they had come across some kind of sentient nebula that was mad that they were there and was trying to swat them away. I mean, especially toward the end where it's moving in a way that is unpredictable, I definitely felt like that. Yeah. Like there's some sort of internal logic behind what it's doing, and these might be decisions. Some science needs to get done on what's going on, and there is... Uh, some pretty fun action where Adira and Tilly are working on this project in a little kind of anteroom to the bridge where you can do science from both sides of a big, you know, transparent screen in the middle. And Tilly and Adira are like working the problem, but also Tilly is really getting snappy with Adira, not feeling great about it. And Culber running between the two of them, waving lights over all of their open wounds, trying to get them patched up while they work the problem. The show wants you to believe that Tilly is acting out of line at Adira here. But that was not my take at all. Like, this is an emergency situation. And we don't have time for Adira's bullshit here. 
they are given a ton of latitude normally to have feelings about a moment. And yeah. a lot of that has to do with their age. And I, and I get that too. But like in an emergency situation, like do the fucking work by the protocol. Yeah. Like the protocol that we all agree on by being in Starfleet. Please, thank you. Do the math problem first and yeah. have the feelings about how we did the math problem later. I didn't think Tilly was unprofessional in just that cutting it off. Like no more of that. Back to work. Yeah, it felt appropriate to an emergency situation, but mm-hmm. in that moment Tilly feels bad about it and Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was amazing that it was Colbert to whom she said, "I'm stamitzing right now." Yeah. I wish she was more specific about like I'm stamitz season 1ing right now. <laughs> we haven't seen that Stamets in a long time. What if Culver had just been like, fuck you, that's my man, and like <laughs> thrown his medical equipment on the floor and stormed out of the room? Oh, you're Stamitzing right now? Like you're being a very generous lover who has a <laughs> stated interest in dental hygiene and uh, has a great set of pajamas? <laughs> that Stamets? Wow, what a terrible thing to be, Tilly. <laughs> what? What? What's happening? What's all this? I'm trying to save you. We get another one of these waves that lifts people up again, and it's much shorter this time. And uh, they're going to need to figure out how to forecast when these waves hit. This is not a circumstance where they can get any work done if they're constantly being lifted up and and dropped all the time. But they can predict them now. Yeah. They know what the period between them is. Right, but it's not always the same period. And that's what's so weird. This is what Burnham asks Tilly. Like, why... If we're talking about waves here, why isn't it always two minute intervals? Why is it a shorter and a longer and a and a shorter again? This is like a combat on the bridge scene that I've always wanted, that the doctors, they're like actively mm-hmm. repairing people as yeah. they go through this. But as they're discussing this, they realize like there's just no way that they can stay here with Book's ship on the end of this tether because it's going to fucking tear Disco apart. So they make the tough decision to cut the cord and back off. Yeah. When the tether gets cut, the winch makes this terrible sound. (laughs) And uh, all the other submarines in the water nearby can hear this. (laughs) It was a bad idea to float the buoy, it turns out. This is a real moment of conflict here because Saru wants to cut the tether. Stamets needs more time. Book wants to cut the tether too. What do you do here? Stamets is like stuck doing kind of menial engineering stuff while his scans are getting run on Book's ship. And this is a source of tension between him and Book. Like, hey, it was super brave of you to come (laughs) along and like look after me. Not really. (laughs) But what Stamets drops in this scene is that, uh, hey, like, um, we're not actually in contact with the ship. So the data that we're gathering is here. Like, you cannot suicide by nebula as much as you want to. Book has got that energy of the, the kid at the high school dance that calls the teachers by their first name <laughs> and, like, knows all the parents and stuff, too. Like, he is not going to be cowed by Stamets in this scene. Yeah. That's a very specific kind of anger that he has. Like he is actively pissed at the way Stamets has treated him since they met. And especially since it was revealed that Book could also work the spore drive. And he has sort of treated this like an opportunity. Like if I'm going to go out, I'm going to do it while throwing double middles at Stamets. So it's the last thing he can remember about me. There's an interesting kind of emotional Aikido happening here in that by Stamets admitting to him his weird feelings that have to do with his own inability to save his family or the crew when the moment of truth came, he uses his own vulnerability as a way to get through to Book in a way that being aggressive against Book never could. It's pretty clear that he needs to sort of break a spell with Book because Book is experiencing shit that is not real. Like, he is actually, like, having delusions of birds hitting the ship and Leto, his little nephew, running around. Mm -hmm. Hey, are you okay? Don't ask me that again. He is not well. Yeah, slow motion kid running. I said it in the previous episode. Like, the saddest kind of visual metaphor you get in movies where tragedy is involved. Mm-hmm. And it's weird that Book always walks up to his nephew and like scrapes his his hand over his face, (laughs) face off style. That is weird. Do you think John Woo thought that was going to catch on as a thing? It is such 
a specific choice for showing affection in a family that I've never seen before in mm. any family, real or imagined. It really did catch on. It was it was a big thing all the way up until the pandemic. And then we were all like, we can't touch faces anymore <laughs> now that there's a pandemic. I'm glad the face touching era is over. <laughs> I have some very sensitive face skin. Yeah. Don't need any of that. Adira and Tilly have a plan. Get Garrett McNamara in here. <laughs> we need Bookshift to surf a big wave out of the nebula. Yeah, the... The 100 light year wave <laughs> is coming. Everyone believes it's out there. Only Garrett McNamara is, is brave enough to surf it. Like a kid in a candy store. Like so excited. Can't wait to ride it every time. Bryce has some surfing skills to reference here. What is up with Bryce having had a replacement in the last episode and now he's back? I was so confused. Who was that guy? I was so confused by this. Like, we're, we are in it. We are in a stressful situation. And Bryce is like, <clears throat> I too have a backstory. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've just been around for the last four seasons. <laughs> I, at all times, wear a wetsuit under my very tight uniform. <laughs> May we all cultivate such life-saving hobbies. Yeah. So they make a go of this surfing thing and the surfing does not go well No, you know that first time you try to get up on the board you know sulu didn't do a good job the first time either Mm -hmm. the way they fucked up the most is that you got to look at the wave and then say my god (laughs) (laughs) yeah if a teacup doesn't crash immediately before that yeah you're not doing it right you know what this is a show that made their choices in terms of bridge damage Uh, a lot of flamethrowers (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and foam rocks being tossed about. Not a lot of yeah. uh, chinaware right, right. being dropped and broken. So after failing to catch this wave, Book really starts to beat himself up and gets like extremely fatalistic. He's like, well, that's it. All is lost. Nothing means anything. It's all over. If I can't surf the biggest wave in the galaxy, then like, who am I Yeah, as a person? What is my identity even? I mean, I'm watching other people win the big trophy at the biggest space wave of the year awards. (laughs) An award show I had no idea about. It's like, I might lose my Billabong sponsorship and then where would I be? I've been drinking all this Red Bull for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) My pee will never be the same after this. I haven't slept normal in a fucking year. Yeah. This is the moment of truth for Saru, of all people. This is what he's there to do as XO. He's like, hey, Michael, maybe you should drop a virtual phone booth around yourself. See if you can't get into book on the other side there as as his special person and not a captain. The cone of silence. Yeah, see if you can't make him feel better over there. Hey, book. It's just us now. And on this private comm channel, Burnham does her best to rally his mental troops the the notre dame fight song begins (laughs) you know like the way that someone's special person often has that cheat code when Mm -hmm. you really need it the most she is able to kind of reach into him and like his feelings of failure are the core issue and david ayala is such a powerful actor and i feel like He's made for a moment like this, where he's having to listen to a person and feel a way about a thing. He has nothing on the page. Yeah. This is his choice. does so much with it. Yeah. And there's that moment where he just kind of like closes his eyes and like takes a deep breath and returns with the resolve. Not much resolve, but enough resolve to do the thing, to get them out of there. And from still within the cone of silence, Michael Burnham like gives him the cue for when to hit thrusters and catch this wave. Book is such an imposing figure that when things get emotional, we're in tight on him, right? We're in like mids and close-ups on his face. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting choice because he his instrument facially is so good. Right. I think a production choice that is less interesting would be taking it wider or looking at the react that Stamets is having to what Book is doing in this moment. But he's so good that all you need is him and all you need is the close-up to evoke the feeling. Yeah. I think the directing in this episode is really 
top notch. Yeah. And there's a great moment where she's given him the cue and Michael Burnham drops her cone of silence and there's just this like absolutely maddening moment where mm -hmm. we don't know whether he made it out yet or not. And I love just the sound design of this moment. Any sign? It's great. Not yet. I love the close-ups on the hands, like as as they try to get the timing right. Yeah, did you see there there was like a cross cut from her yeah. hand to his as they like they've got their controls synchronized so that they both do it at the same moment. That was a nice edit. It was cool. We kind of luxuriate in what is sort of a thing that this show does. We get reacts from everyone on the bridge before book breaks free. And then we get that sense of elation where everyone's happy and relieved at about just how cool Bryce is about <laughs> his hobbies. So you really surf big waves, huh? That's awesome. Maybe we should like go to the hollow sometime and you can teach me or whatever. Takes years to get up to this level, so... There is a uh, a pretty fun celebration on the bridge after this. Tilly gives a you know nice slap on the back to Adira that uh, is clearly very meaningful mm -hmm. to Adira. And uh, Stamets and Book kind of fly back in his totally trashed ship and <laughs> have have a nice little moment between them where Stamets kind of owns what a piece of shit he was previously and. He was like, all right, well, now I'm going to take this pip off my forehead. Yeah, the promise made is that Stamets is going to take the data that they almost sacrificed everything for and figure this out for Book Yeah, as a sense of obligation here. Book saved Stamets' family's life, so he is going to figure this out. I know you've been in the ball-kicking machine pretty much the whole time so far this season, Book. Why don't you take a step out of that for a second? Yeah, why don't you just swing your leg over it and uh, go take a seat where the president should have been sitting. <laughs> Tilly runs into Culber in the corridor after this scene where she admits to him that she hasn't been feeling right since that incident in the cargo bay and could use some talk therapy if Culber's up for it. Yeah, this is kind of back-to-back -back scenes of both Tilly and Adira... Tilly to Culbra and Adira to Gray talking about how neither of them are really feeling right after that. And it's kind of for different reasons. Like the psychological fallout of that has been really tough for both of them. But I think it seems like it, it was tough for Tilly because Tilly wasn't feeling right before that happened. And mm -hmm. that was just like, like, I don't think either of them really knew or cared a ton about Nellis, but he was like waving a gun in their face and having a panic attack and then he died. And I can see why yeah. <laughs> Like neither of them feel great about how that went down. Uh, yeah, I've got a question about Adira and the Grey Golem and the Angulosaur. So if Grey gets put into the Golem, could Adira... <laughs> put their ankylosaur into the golem and like reunite them as Trill and the uh, and Trill host? Like is that a thing that's on the table here? For crying out loud, it's it's just a TV show. And then would it be Grey Tall and just Adira would have their old last name? Is this like a Grover Cleveland thing? Get a life. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take my answer in the back. <laughs> Grover Cleveland's the president who was and then wasn't and then was again, right? Do I have that I trivia think you're right? right? About that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Back on Book's ship, Michael Burnham tells Book, that was some nice flying out there, right up until the moment where you almost got killed. And that really blew. <laughs> Hell of a day. Book admits to Michael Burnham that he wasn't ready. He acted as if, like so many of us do when we're not ready for a thing. Yeah. He keeps seeing his nephew and he's really struggling with the nephew thing. And this part really struck me a lot because the description that Book gives to his grief is the worst part of losing someone, which is like, you want to be sure, but you're never sure how that person who is gone feels about you or you aren't sure that that person knew how you felt about them 
because that's just the way life is. You can never be sure how anyone feels about you in that way. And it, it feels especially acute in death. So it was a really powerful moment for me as someone who's recently experienced that kind of grief, but just a really great performance by uh, David Ayala again. Yeah. In an, in an episode that he really takes over in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's a it's very much a book episode mm-hmm. and it's We got some uh, book ends to it, didn't we? Very nice. Mm, very yeah. nice. <laughs> I wasn't going to let you have that one, but I hope it's not the end of book. I hope he keeps coming back in subsequent episodes. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I do know. I do know. Maybe maybe stick a bookmark Tim Mam in here. Pick him up for the next episode when you're mm-hmm. ready. Hey. Hey. That's a date. Book it. <laughs> we have been waiting for someone worthy of our attention. What? Who are you? We can counter them. Those are Klingons? The very end of the episode involves the report that all of the data is worthless because they no. wanted the data as a way to project the course of this maybe double, maybe single black hole situation out there. But the distortions got worse for everyone involved because this thing changed course, and they don't know why it did that. It's marauding. (laughs) It's not just heading in one specific direction. I wish I understood the graphic that Tilly puts up. She's got like a visual aid here, and she's like, look at this. And she like swipes left and it like just rotates a bit. And he's like, whoa, oh shit, no. It swipes left and it states that Tilly is interested in dating the double black hole. (laughs) It's a picture of the black hole uh, holding up a fish that it presumably just caught. (laughs) The black hole really likes hiking. (laughs) Really interested in physical fitness. Yeah. No drama, 420 friendly. You know those black holes are shaved. (laughs) Did you like this episode, Ben? I did, and I especially liked the button on the episode, that long pullout uh, showing the scale of this thing relative to the disco. That may be the longest pullout that Star Trek has ever done. Yeah, it's enough to make Frakes blush. No way. If Frakes was like in the in the uh, post production facility when they were screening this episode, I bet uh, I bet he snapped a pencil. Yeah, when he saw this. (laughs) Whatever the antonym is for enhance. That's what he was saying <laughs> over and over again. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great episode. It's My concern remains that this is another season of Disco that is one big problem mm-hmm. with a bunch of little episodes to solve it. And it doesn't seem like this episode has done anything to assuage that, but it is yeah. telling that story in an interesting way. And it is not the same story as previous episodes. This is not a rinse repeat. Yeah. I am with you on not wanting to see another monster of the season problem to solve. But I think more than that, I could live with a big problem season again if it was less heavy handed about modeling the behavior we want to see in the world. I like seeing depictions of characters modeling considerate behavior, especially during times of grief. Like, I think it's good to see that on TV. But this is now two episodes in a row where where those themes are especially dense and especially verbose. Yeah. And I think if a secondary interest of making great television is inspiring people to be better versions of themselves, I think you're better able to do that in a more subtle and sneaky way. I yeah like I really loved the scene where Tilly asked Culber for help because that felt really authentic to me that's Mm -hmm. a ask that I have had to make more than once in my life and it is hard to do Mm -hmm. and it is easy to get up in your head and feel humiliated for needing to ask for that kind of help in the way that Tilly did I think Mary Wiseman gave so much humanity to that performance especially the like goofing and trying to you know defray the the awkwardness afterwards right. that she does. Ought to go dig into that data. All right. All right. Go save the world. No, I will. Yeah, I, th- I like funny voices. Yeah. But that was like one scene in a stack of like six scenes at the end of this episode where characters were unpacking trauma with each other. Right. I got a little like trauma unpack fatigue. I did know? too, yeah. Maybe in a way that we talk about like album sequencing, like maybe breaking those up might have worked better for us. Yeah. 
But Unbalanced, a really good episode. And uh, I can't wait to see if we have some really good priority one messages in the inbox, Adam. Hey, here's the thing, Ben. All of our P1s this week are unpacking grief. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Adam, our first P1 is from Andy K, and it's to Ben and Adam, and it goes like this. Hey guys, I paused my Merchfun subscription this year after I quit my heinous job. And now I'm back to working a job I really enjoy. I wanted to throw you some scarves for all the laughs during a few rough months. Looking forward to catching up on the bonus content. Thanks guys, you rock. Wow, thanks Andy K. I'm glad you're in a better job situation. No one likes a heinous job. Hey, yeah, heinous jobs are for the birds. Birds. Get out of those heinous jobs. Highly encouraged. And if uh, if pausing a subscription to our show would help somebody get out of a heinous job, then I would encourage them to pause said subscription for that purpose. I absolutely co-sign that. Yeah. yeah. Save your own career life, please. Keep listening. Keep enjoying the free stuff. And uh, we'll keep making it. And... Uh, that's a, a great example you set for yourself and others, Andy K. Andy K is on their way to go listen to uh, some new episodes of the Santa Monica Mountains podcast. Yeah. Maybe uh, some factory seconds in there. Look at all this beautiful food. Mm. We're starting to stock the bonus content larder uh, more than we ever have before, thanks to a number of our producer candidates we've gotten to know over the last few months. Yeah, it's been really fun, and we I think we have six bonus episodes, one of which we just dropped, and uh, five more to come soon. So yeah. if people have become re-employed recently and would like to restart their subscriptions, now is uh, as good a time as any to do it. It's true. Ben, our second Priority One message is of a personal nature. It's from Mike Durst, and it is to Ben and Adam. That message goes like this. Thanks for what you do over here on TGD. You bring joy to my podcast viewing schedule every week. All the best from a former U.S. Navy Lieutenant Durst. Wow. <laughs> P.S. I know Lieutenant Durst is a TGG reference, but I wanted to support TGG too. Thanks again. <laughs> wow, Lieutenant Durst. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we got a drop for that guy. Lieutenant Durst. <laughs> Hilarious. Captain There it is. That's big fun. Amazing. This Durst has got to be cooler than that Durst. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, well, if you'd like to get a Priority One message here on the show, you know what to do. You head to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. Set it up. Top of the morning to you. This episode is brought to you by the St. Patrick's Day Shamrock Shavers Manscaped. This year, don't just chase rainbows. Make your own pot of gold and groom your little leprechaun with the leaders in below-the-kilt care. I didn't make that up. That's actual copy sent to us by the great folks over at Manscaped who make the shaver that I use downstairs on my little leprechaun. And uh, I recommend it. Uh, it works great. Uh, trimming the hedges in your Irish garden isn't just for below the belt. You can complete your look with their new signature Beard Hedger Pro Kit plus Handyman Electric Face Shaver. Everything they make is really good and high quality, and this new trimmer that they have comes with two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blades. They've got one for a classic trim and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. So get 20% off plus free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and get free shipping with code TREK at manscapes.com. This St. Patrick's Day, make sure your little hairy leprechaun is luckier than ever with Manscaped. I have tried so many meal services over the years. After all, I am a podcast host. And I gotta tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? Because I can go from, what am I gonna have for dinner, to eating a great dinner in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals. And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. 
Again, that's the code TREK50 at factormeals.com slash TREK50 to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you discover yourself and Edward Larkin? I'm going to give it to Saru. This episode, I felt like they did such a great job of like bobbing and weaving the camera to not focus on his fingers. And then in that last scene where he's on the bridge, where Tilly comes up to him with the with the bad news right before that he just reaches up and like caresses his brooch yeah <laughs> his awful fingers I'm like come on man you almost had such a good episode <laughs> of very few shots of your fingers <laughs> and you just stuck them into frame give me a break we are going to make damn sure nothing like this happens again it's like the finger equivalent of an extra spiking the camera not on our watch <laughs> now we gotta shoot the thing again not on our watch Back to one. How about you, Adam? Did you have an Edward Larkin? God, I had one, but that is so persuasive. <laughs> I feel like you won me over with that. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm getting out of mine and I'm getting into yours. You pulled up in the Larkin car, and I'm hopping in the passenger seat. That was great. We're heading to Vegas, baby. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I have an episode name and description for what's next. Oh, great. Let's hear about what's next on The Greatest Discovery. Next week will be episode three of season four, Choose to Live. Choose to Live. <laughs> Burnham and Tilly hunt the killer of a Starfleet officer. As Stamets and the science team race against the clock to prevent the anomaly from killing anyone else. Someone uh, walks into the ship's bathroom and finds Commander Triple, like, in the toilet, <laughs> just <laughs> wet and drowned. <laughs> the auto flush, just flushing and flushing and flushing. <laughs> Who do you think is going to get whacked? Ooh, I don't know. Hey, here's a bet. Okay. Is it someone we've met before or is this someone who's introduced to us only to die in the same episode? I'm going to bet that it was that guy that was in Bryce's chair wow. in the last episode. Yeah, so someone we've seen, but we, yeah, that makes sense. That's a good choice. Because he, he was a very appealing character. Like, he was very nice and likable, so it would hurt. Don't you dare kill Bryce, yeah. especially after getting a backstory. Yeah. <laughs> now that we know one thing about Bryce. I think my vote's going to be Bryce for that reason. Oh, you think they're going to whack Bryce and bring in replacement guy? Doesn't this happen all the time with, with characters? Like, oh, we, we're just getting to know them. RSVP, Bryce. Yeah, yeah. This is what happened with Arium, where where the second we started to like right. learn things about Arium's backstory, she was fucking dead a couple episodes later. If we open the next episode with Bryce looking at hollow pictures framed on his desk, <laughs> Bryce, is, Bryce is not long for this show. Yeah, that would suck. All right, well, um, looking forward to it one way or another, and uh, we'll be back next week with that. For now... 
why don't you enjoy these credits? The Greatest Discovery is an Uxbridge Shimoda podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. This episode was edited by Wendy Pretty. That's me. Our music is by Adam Ragusea, who makes a great YouTube cooking channel. Just search Adam Ragusea. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Greatest Trek, and those accounts are run by Chief of the Watch, Bill Tilly. If you enjoy the show, help us out by leaving a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download podcasts and recommend the show to a friend to help us grow. We'll be back next week with more of The Greatest Discovery. Chief of the Watch, cut the tether. <laughs> MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.